Yesterday we had a members meeting and there was a lot of important announcements that were shared yesterday. One of the most important announcements that were shared that I wanted to share this morning with you all as well. My barber has been on vacation for the last two weeks. And so me and my three sons look like a Motown band from the 70s right now. So we're working on our first single and our dance moves. We called the Allen Fall. So, so I'm hoping this week as he's back, we can clean all this up. My boys look like aborigines right now. But I love it. So in case anybody was wondering, this isn't a new thing. It's just a reality. All right, open your Bibles to Romans 6. We're going to keep the party going. We're in a red light, green light series on Romans. Last week, <clears throat> Mike did a message on Mark chapter 4, which is getting at something similar to the passage when it's talking about you know, emphasizing just sort of the different ways that people who hear the gospel respond to the gospel. And one of the ways that I had spoken about in the previous message in Luke, in Romans 6, when I did 12 through 14, was the seed that gets entangled by, um, as it grows, because it's worried and has other interests in mind. And that would be something I think is an epidemic among the American evangelical church, where a lot of Christianity, a lot of the true pursuit of it, a lot of the obedience to Christ has become somewhat optional or at very best distracted. So there is a sense where a lot of Christians would indicate, would communicate this with a degree of sorrow that they're not praying as much as they used to. They find it harder to read or to be a part of the life of a church or to meditate and fasting. Fasting is sort of a forgotten virtue of the past along the evangelical landscape. And these wouldn't just be my subjective words. These are a lot of people who have a greater pulse on church culture in America are communicating similar things, that we are a culture inundated with entertainment. Now, I'm not here to bash social media or anything. I use all of these things. I have an iPad, an iPhone. I have a podcast. I'm in social media world. I Actually, now I would be considered to some degree a public figure which I think besides being a life coach is the dumbest designation that you can, you can give. What is a life coach? I know some people that are life coaches that got debt. Like, get out of here, man. What are you talking about? You ain't no life coach. You need a life raft. So what we're concerned about, what I think God is concerned about, particularly as we look at passages like Romans chapter 6, God is concerned about his children. He's concerned about those who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ learning how to navigate in a world of distraction. Even though the early church did not have some of the modes of distraction like we do, like technology, or at least our particular brand of technology, they lived in a culture where people worshiped a lot of other gods. It was very fast paced, it was very dangerous. You couldn't just walk the streets at night. I mean, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan describing people coming from Jerusalem, the holy city, on their way back down and meeting a band of robbers. It was common 
for people in that culture to experience people breaking in their houses, being attacked, and your goods being stolen. So it was a very difficult world. There are people who think, oh, man, I wish we could get back to, like, the days when it was like, what days were those? I don't know what you're talking about. I wish we could get back to the days of, of the church in Rome. And it was crazy back then. There was a plague that almost wiped out people. Christians were dying because they were taking care of other people who were dying, burying their dead, feeding these people, getting diseases, and doing it all to the glory of God because people were made in the image of God. I don't know a time except in America, in church history, where it's been easy to be a Christian. Well, that's part of our challenge, is that when we approach passages, particular passages in the Bible, we have a 21st century bias. We have sort of our perspective and and the way we process Christianity. And because it's our norm, we think it's the biblical norm. And so God in passages like Romans 6 is challenging people to not let themselves be overcome by the sinful habits they used to have. If you are a Christian, from God's perspective, it's the process of what you used to do versus what you're getting used to. That's what the Christian life is about. This is what you used to do, and you're living getting used to who you are right now. But it comes with challenges. Today's passage will be no different, although Paul does in this particular passage. He uses some similar language that we heard in verses 12 through 14. But then he kind of shifts, and he makes a dramatic shift in the tone of what he's saying and to the people he's talking to, which I think is encouraging, but it's also one for us to pay attention to to see what he's actually saying and who he's saying it to. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. I'm reading from the CSB translation, beginning in verse 15, and I quote, What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. Let's pray. Father, we don't come before you as people who do not have genuine struggles. I'll be the first to say that I'm not where I'd like to be. I have weaknesses that I wish were strengths. I have ways that I feel like I haven't made the progress that I want to make. Much of it is my own fault. And some of it's just the, the challenge of the Christian life, as you know. You became a human being able to identify what it means to be human. For no one 
will stand before you and say to you, God, you don't understand what it was like because you do. Matter of fact, one could say you were the only true human being. You understand what it's like to, to love God, to resist some temptation, and not sin. The very things you call us to are the things that are complicated for various reasons. So I do not preach this morning as Moses coming down the mountain with two stone tablets, having it all figured out. I think it's obvious that I don't. But I try to preach faithfully from what you said in this passage for all of us. That we may take some comfort and where necessary, some correction. So that we glorify you. The goal of the Christian life is to make it to the end. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, I fought the good fight of faith. The end of his life, he said, I finished the race. I did not turn away from the Lord, but I fought the good fight of faith. May today's words challenge us to be able to say Paul's words when we're at the end of our lives and we look back, not without regret or not without failure, but with faith. That by your grace, we fought the good fight of faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul begins in verse 15 with a similar question like verse 1. He's asking these, Paul asks these rhetorical questions to people for two reasons. Primarily, he's writing a letter, so he's not there. This isn't a, a, a monologue. This is a written account of what he's saying to a Christian church in the city of Rome. And so he's writing letters. He uses sort of a, a, a technique where he assumes that someone will have some measure of objection. Sometimes he may have heard from someone else who got to him from that church that this is what people are saying in the church. And so what he does is he poses a question that they can't obviously answer because this is in written form. And then he answers that question to make sure, if nothing else, everyone is on the same page. So verse 15 is almost like verse 1 of Romans 6 where he asks this question. After he concludes that we are under law, not grace, from verse 14, he says, well, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Now, this is an imaginary perspective that he has, but this is, in the early church, this was a significant issue. You had thousands of years of living under the Mosaic law, which was essentially like, it was a system of earning God's favor, if you will. The Mosaic law was essentially a system of laws that had civil statutes, that had priestly ordinances, there were, there were there were a lot of rules and a lot of regulations. And they make up what we call the Mosaic Covenant. In essence, in short, most of us think of the Mosaic Covenant as the Ten Commandments. We think of the law as some of the Ten Commandments. But it's much more, much more involved than just the Ten Commandments. They, call, they sort of summarize all that God is saying for his people, particularly in the Old Testament. Now, these were understood that if you do these, 
In a sense, you're thinking you earn God's favor and are righteous. And righteous people make it to heaven. So this is the law that people are living under. So there's things like temple sacrifices. If you sin, you kill an animal. You go take the animal to the priest, and they atone for your sins. And there was, a, there was so many things involved, and we've talked about this a lot. I'm not going to go back and say all of that stuff, but there's a lot to the law, and that is a significant dichotomy. Kind of like in America, one of the main dichotomies of our history is race between black and white people. It's just one thing that just seems to never go away, no matter what. If something happens, that always comes back up. Not between any other cultures. There's many people who don't like each other. There's many cultures that don't get along. But there's something about, because of American history and the emphasis between black and white relationships, that always comes up. Well, this was the same thing for them as it relates to the law and grace. The law always keeps coming up because that's what they, that was what defined them. And then here comes grace. It's this different system to think about. And grace is sort of, uh, I love this, the way it's described. It's a system for obtaining righteousness as a free gift from God as opposed to earning it by perfect obedience to the law. So you have, okay, perfect obedience to the law, which no one except Jesus could do, or grace, faith in Jesus Christ, where God credits you with having obeyed the law. This is a dichotomy. And, so, and because this was so new, Jesus showed up. We're not but a couple decades removed from Jesus' life. Most people aren't like, okay, Jesus came, everything changed. They're like, okay, Jesus was cool, but we still got the law and stuff that we have to deal with. Just like if you live in a metropolitan area like us, you may think that race relations are different than if you go down south in Alabama. You go to Mississippi, and they're like, I don't know what these people are talking about because I can't go down that street. Well, this is how it was for them. Grace and law were very much a fundamental part of their worldview, and Paul's trying to take them from law. You can't do the Mosaic law. You can't obey the Ten Commandments. Jesus even summarized it in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's probably not many people in this room that can say they've done that even. Perfectly. So here he has this, this, this competing reality, law versus grace. And he's asking this question because he's concerned about, primarily God is concerned about, and making sure that people don't misunderstand that because there's grace, oh, this forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ for when we fail and we don't have to do all the things we had to do, there's forgiveness. He wants to make sure people don't take that grace and that forgiveness of sin and think that sin no longer matters anymore to God. And so he asks this question, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? In other words, since God has already declared us righteous because of Jesus, because of his work, does it mean that our sin no longer matters because we're forgiven anyway? That's essentially what he's asking. He's anticipating people who will think that way. Oh, well, shoot, if, I, if I'm forgiven for my sin and, I'm, and Jesus did the work, then I'm good. 
In the immortal words of Jay-Z, we're going to send a lot of hope. Christ forgive us. That's how people think. Now, I'm not just talking about a street hustler from, from Brooklyn. This is how people think in this room. This is how we can be tempted to think. Oh, grace is so amazing. I could just do whatever and be forgiven. And what happens is when we live like that, grace doesn't become amazing. It becomes cheap. It's not amazing anymore because it's like, well, man, what's the... You know, if everybody gets a trophy, then what about the team that worked hard and won? But this is the culture we live in. Everyone gets a trophy. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. In eternity, everybody doesn't get a trophy. Everyone doesn't get a trophy in eternity. Only the people who play the game and who finish it. Not the people who start it and quit. Doesn't matter when you quit. If you quit before those four zeros are on that clock, you didn't finish the game. You didn't finish the game from God's perspective. 1 John 2 says that. 2 Peter. 1 John 2 says, look, if they went out from us, then they were never with us in the first place. If people who profess to believe, my friends, co-workers, neighbors, family, children, all of that, they profess to believe, and then they end up walking away from the faith, then they never believed in the first place. Finish the game. Then you get the trophy. This is what... What he's, what he's concerned with. So should we sin because grace doesn't matter? Remember, I said this before. There's a difference between I can sin because God forgives and when I sin, God forgives. There's a difference. And it's not semantics. One says I can pursue sin because God forgives One recognizes that they will sin, but God forgives. To add another layer and motivator to not think that grace is so amazing that I can pursue sin and be cool with God, Paul answers his own rhetorical question in verse 16. So he asks the question in verse 15, since grace is so amazing and God has forgiven me in Jesus Christ, my my sin is a match, shouldn't we sin all the more? And he says this in verse 16 to, to make the point. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? Very common sense. What I love about Paul, this is what he does. He does his common, especially in this book. He goes from a very common sense sort of horizontal human to human analogy, and then he just moves to a spiritual one just like that. Without just a transition, you wouldn't even see it. So he starts with a very common sense, horizontal human reality. He says, if you offer yourselves to someone, which means to make yourself accessible and available. So if you offer yourself, so when someone's, you're going to hang out with someone, what do you do? You're making yourself available. You're offering your time and whatever comes with that. He says, if you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, You are slaves of the one you obey. Okay, that's kind of like, okay, that makes sense. That's kind of like a duh statement. If I offer myself to someone and obey them, then I'm a slave to that person. That's who I belong to. Okay, great. But then he moves 
to a spiritual, to more of a vertical situation. Then he says this, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Well, you can't offer yourself to someone else and lead to righteousness. So he talks about offering to someone and you're slaves to that person and it thinks, okay, yeah, they understand slavery, they understand the context of their day. But then he says, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So if those are still two people he's talking about, well, the only two people they can be is Satan or the Savior. Those are the only two people they can be, slave of sin. Or if we want to get real theological, we could be like Adam or the second Adam. Adam, who brought sin into the world, or the second Adam, who brought grace to the world. This is a, and what I call identity statement. There are statements in the Bible designed to, to remind everyone who believes in God of their identity. Identity statements are all over the place. I remember in the 80s, there used to be this slogan. They might still use it now. There was this slogan that said, you are what you eat. You remember that? You are what you eat. I think even Snickers, well, Snickers doesn't use it the same way, but they'll have somebody be real crabby. And they'll be like, eat a Snickers, and then you bite the Snickers, and then you're yourself. So in other words, you need this Snickers to be yourself. Identity statements, you are what you eat. The, the, the famous French philosopher, Rene Descartes, Descartes, says, I think, therefore I am. Right? These are all identity statements. Because I can think I'm, I'm alive, I am. These are identity statements. This is an identity statement from God. And here's the statement. You are who you obey. That's who you are. That's the identity statement from this passage. You are who you obey. You are who you obey. No questions asked. You are who you obey. Not for a moment, don't think for a moment, that if the, the overwhelming response to God is attitude, sin, and all of that, then that's who you obey. And sometimes we're afraid to acknowledge that. You ask people, hey, you think they were a believer? And people try to be gracious. I don't know. Wasn't sure. Now, if you, did, if you weren't around them, fine. But if you are around somebody enough, what comes out? What comes out? You are who you obey. He wants to make it clear. Listen, if you think that because God has given grace through Jesus Christ and forgiveness, and you can just sin and be forgiven, no, you're obeying the wrong person. You're obeying the wrong person. This goes back to Genesis 3. When, when God told the serpent in Genesis 3.15, after he deceived Eve and Adam, God says this, this woman will give birth to a seed and you will be at enmity, your seed and your offspring and her offspring. Now, as far as we know, Satan didn't get married and have a wife and kids, Right? I don't know where stuff comes from. When I was a kid, whenever it was sunny and it rained, what, what, what does that mean? The devil's beating his wife. 
Do you know, I believed that for a long time until I became a Christian, checked the Bible and realized, I don't think the devil was married. <laughs> I was like, I don't see where the devil was married. I don't know if that's true anymore. Ruined my childhood, man, the whole time. I had an easy answer. Why is it, oh, the devil's beating his wife? It's like, wow, you beat your wife and it rains? Like, that's something. What happens when it snows? Like, what's going on? Would you make up for it and give her a gift from for every kiss begins with K or something? Would you? That's what it was. Angels having pillow fights. Vicky, that's the first I've ever heard of that. Wow. This goes with the statement: you learn something new every day. Angels are having pillow fights. I used to just think the world was a snow globe. I didn't know what it was going on. The devil's not beating his wife but you are who you obey. And you know how you obey by how you act. What's the fruit that comes out of our lives? It's not that complicated. The most complicated thing is admitting the reality. That's way more complicated than seeing the reality. It's being humble enough to admit it. So he wants to make sure God, on Paul on behalf of God, wants to make sure people understand, listen, you can't live like that. But then he turns the corner. Up to this point in Romans 6, it's, it's an encouragement to not let sin reign over you and not offer your weapons to unrighteousness. It's all this language. And we talked about aiming your weapon at the sun in you or the sin in you. And so, so you have all this. And then he turns the corner in verse 17 and, and uses a phrase that he's never used in the rest of Scripture. He says this in verse 17. He says, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. Now, you have to understand, this is, we process this and we grow from this, we learn from this because we believe this is God's word. You're a Christian, you believe the Bible is God's word, and we, we, get our, we take our cues from this. So we, we tend to read this from sometimes a first-person perspective. Like, this is talking directly to me. That's how we read it. And on some level, that's fine on many levels. But there are times where we have to remember that he's talking to an original audience first. He's writing to people some 2,000 years, just under 2,000 years ago, trying to help them understand. And so he has intimate knowledge of this church enough to say, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. So he's talking to a group of believers that he actually knows, heard the gospel, believed it, and is living it. So he says, you used to be slaves of sin. In other words, what he's saying is, look, you're no longer under the power of sin. Even though we still have the presence of it. There's a difference. There's a difference. If I had, if I had Brother William Dallas come up here, he leads our AA. I've had the privilege to be at some of those meetings when, we, when they first started a couple years ago. And they're phenomenal. If I asked him to come up here, he could tell you the tension of 
having been given over to something and enslaved to it, like alcoholism, and then fighting it, separating from it and still seeing the difference. Knowing what it's like to be in this world, he chooses this world. And there are other men and women who come to that meeting that do the same. He understands the power of this, this narcotic, this drug, if you will. And he still lives with the presence of it, not the power of it. I was, I was blown away. We come to these meetings and you say, hey, my name is such and such. I'm an alcoholic. And they say, hey, hey tell your name. That phrase, I'm an alcoholic, would be said by people who haven't had a drink in decades. But they understand. At first, I didn't like that. I was like, nah, you shouldn't say that. That's not your identity. You know, the Bible says you once were, right? And I still agree with that. But there's a sense where I get it because that's, way, that's a way of understanding that even though this no longer has power over me, there's still the presence of it is there. I'm still capable of giving back into this power. And so they acknowledge that that power is still present, but they're no longer under its authority. Well, this is what he's saying. You used to be slaves of sin. It used to have power over you. And by that, it meant you used to just couldn't wait to do it. I remember a distinct time in my life where I couldn't wait to get into particular aspects of sin. Couldn't wait. Looking forward to it. Made plans to do it. Be there at seven. Telling you, don't be late. You, know, he's just, you can't wait to sin. And then you get to a point where you're like, wow, I can't believe I used to do that. Well, what changed? What changed? Well, it was the Lord. It was the Lord. So the, so the power of sin is still is gone, which means I don't have to give in to it, but its presence remains, and that's part of the temptation. So he says to them, you used to be slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart. Now, again, he's talking to a particular group of people. So here's the question that we have to ask. We have to, let's not read this first person right now as if he's talking to us. Let's make this a question and ask this. Is he describing us? Is he describing me when he says you used to be slaves of sin? Is he describing us? That's the question. You used to be slaves of sin. Is he describing us? See, these are the moments where we take stock and we ask the real questions and try to give real answers. Just like when the disciples were told, one of you will betray me. Remember, none of them said, well, it's Judas. We know how he is. You know what they said when Jesus said that? Is it I, Lord? They started here first. An application of that Please don't think about anybody else that you think is enslaved to sin. Right, right, right. Don't think about your spouse, your children, your coworker, your boss, your cousin, whoever. Does this describe you? That you used to be a slave to sin? Used to be. If it does not, 
And the next question is, what must I do so that it does? What must I do so that it does? And in this verse, he uses a phrase that Paul doesn't use in the rest of the Bible. All the letters that Paul wrote, everything that Paul wrote, he uses this phrase and doesn't use the compilation of these words. And, and is the only time in the New Testament, it's the only time he wrote in the New Testament, that Paul uses this phrase, obeyed from the heart. He says, you used to be slaves of sin. You obeyed from the heart. This pattern of teaching. He doesn't use this phrase anywhere else in the scriptures. So what is he saying? You obey from the heart. He's talking to them, but now we're, we're right now, we're, we're off of them. Now we're, we're, we're trying to decide, is he talking to me? What does it mean, obeyed from the heart? It's obviously an intentional phrase. Paul's guided by the Spirit to write what he wrote. God, for some reason, wanted us to get this phrase, obeyed from the heart, to communicate from God's perspective how he sees this church and hopefully how he sees this church. He says, you obeyed from the heart. I think in context... He's describing a genuine love for Jesus. A genuine love for Jesus that redefines how we think about obedience. You know, when Jesus said, Jesus said this, this is the one thing about being a Christian that I feel like people forget about this or don't acknowledge it, or maybe they do. I don't know. I don't hear this a lot. When you say, well, what makes your, you've heard me ask this question before. What makes your obedience inherently Christian? Jehovah's Witness evangelize more than we do. Muslims pray five times a day. That's more than we do. There are people who are not believers that love their spouses, love their children, don't cheat on their taxes, don't steal paper clips from work. There are people who do all of that. So what makes when you do it Christian? Why isn't this guy a Christian whose marriage is better than yours? Why, aren't, why isn't this guy a Christian whose children are more respectful to him than yours are to you? All of us have met someone that'd be like, man, you make a good Christian. You ever, been, you ever been convicted by somebody that's not a Christian because they act like more of a Christian than you do? You on your job and you talking about your boss and like, you know what, I just don't even, I'm just going to work and be, I just want to do my, I'm not going to say anything. And you're like, that's what I should be saying. <laughs> Having to go back and be like, hey, man, my bad, man, I was, uh, I was, you know, I was out of, you know, trying to figure out how to say it. I thought I have to confess to people like, hey, I just need to ask you for forgiveness. But they're like, no, nah, man, you are, you, you know, you're just human. I was like, nah, it's more serious than that, man. Because <laughs> even you didn't do that, you know? Can't stand it. So what makes, you, what makes your obedience Christian? Well, this is what I think. When Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father, 
He wasn't talking about just his actions. He was talking about his motive. His desire was to please the Father. And this is what makes our obedience distinctly Christian. We have this new category of, I want to honor the Lord. I want to do this because it honors God. I'm doing this because I want to please the Lord. In other words, I'm not doing this because I feel like it necessarily. And some people think, well, no, that's, 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 that's not a good idea. Okay, go to Matthew 21, where Jesus tells this parable of two sons. And he goes up and says, the father goes to the first son, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, hey, man, I need you to go work in the yard today. And that son says, all right, dad, I got you. I'll do it in a minute. But he doesn't do it. He goes to the second son, I need you to work in the yard today. He was like, oh, man, no, I'm, I ain't doing it. And then later on, he decides, no, that's wrong, and he goes and does it. Jesus asked the Pharisees, which one obeyed the will of the Father? And he says, the one who did it. So even though the initial impulse was like, I'm not going to do it, still did it. So I think there's room for initially not wanting to do something and then being like, no, nah, I need to honor the Lord and do it. It's the motive. When there's a genuine love for Jesus, we make decisions to sacrifice because we want to honor the Lord. Because sometimes no one else is watching and would know. You know, we have people serving a number of ways here, but only the Lord knows if you're doing it from a good heart. Only the Lord knows that. You could be in here doing your thing, just getting through, and people are like, man, they're such a servant. And they're going to stand before the Lord and be like, hardly any rewards for you because you complained in your heart the whole time. Only he knows that, right? But we know that he, the only people who know what's going on is us and him. So when we, when we do things that say we want to honor the Lord, when we're motivated by that, and to be honest with you, sometimes that's all you have. Your spouse is going to get on your nerves. Been on, be on date nights. They look amazing. You get in a conflict over something dumb, go home, and the last thing you want to do is touch them. Love your kids. Remember when you thought your kids are just, oh, the most precious thing in the world? Now you can't. When are you moving out? <laughs> when are you going? How old are you? Okay, I've done my duty. When are you leaving? Who are you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not at that place yet, but it's like, man, my kids, man, they'll eat a whole box of cereal. Day one. I don't even eat cereal no more because I don't know if it's going to be none. I go get a box and be like, man, I can't. I can't wait till you old enough to get a job and, and, and put a little bit of groceries in here. And my kids are 11, 10, and 7. Man, I got a ways to go. When your motive is to obey the Lord, like honor the Lord, like that's actually, that language is actually functional in many Christian lives. My son thinks like that. I'm grateful, but my son has those categories. He uses the phrase, I want to honor the Lord. And to me, it's like, okay, that's real to me. There's a motive for our obedience. That's what makes our obedience distinctly Christian, not the action but the motive. And there are people who do not have that motive, even though they can duplicate the action. If it is not for the Lord, 
then for that, there's no reward. There's another way I think we can understand this obeyed from the heart. So I think it's both motive, but then in, you, you can turn there if you want. But in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, a very brilliant phrase that God had John write. I'm going to read verses 3 through 4. You can turn there if you want. Again, I read from the CSB. This is what he says. 1 John 5, 3, this is what he says. For, for this is what love for God is. Not the love of God, but for God. Okay, this is what I'm talking about. This is what love for God is to keep his commands. Okay, duh. But then he says this, and his commands are not a burden. So as we keep his commands, so there's we do them, but then listen to the motive language. They're not a burden or burdensome, depending on your translation. That's a powerful statement. It's not just that we keep the commands, but they're not a burden to do so. Now, what does it mean for them to be a burden? You know, by definition, a burden is something heavy. It's something weighty. But in context, the sense that you get from what he's saying here is that God's commands are not oppressive. They're not oppressive. Oppressive is when something or someone is preventing you from being who you are and doing what you want to do. And what he's saying is love for God is keeping his command, his commands, and they're not oppressive. They're not tyrannical. They're not harsh. They're not grievous. You're not complaining because you have to do this. I've known of many believer, professed believer, that at some point the commands became a burden. You know, when you first get saved, now, some people, you grow up in a Christian home, you don't always know that transition. And that's, that's amazing. I want my kids to have that testimony. I don't want my kids to grow up and be like, oh, I was this, and I went and did all this stuff. And I don't want them to have that. I don't want them to have my testimony. Don't have mine. Boring testimonies glorify God. <laughs> Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He didn't say, let them go out into the world, get into all this stuff, and then come to me. He said, let the little children come to me. So I want my kids' testimonies to be like, I'm not exactly sure when I became a Christian, but I grew up in a Christian home, and that's who I am. Jesus is okay with those. I don't want my kids to be like, yeah, I was in the streets. I went to prison. I was drugs, guns, and then, and then I found Jesus. No. I don't want them to have that testimony. Because if they do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel like I failed. I'm not saying that doesn't mean I did necessarily because you can't stop people from doing what they want to do. You cannot. But I don't want them to have that testimony. I don't think that testimony glorifies God. I hate when people hear my testimony and think that's the one that glorifies God. No. The real testimonies are the ones that say, I live in the same world you do that's just pulling me to lust, to lie, to anger, to deceit, to betrayal, and all of that stuff. And I didn't do them because I grew up in church and I actually listened and trusted my parents. That's a powerful testimony. Anybody can give in to something. It's the people who resist it that can say, yeah, this is powerful testimony. Those are the ones we need to elevate. 
Ones like mommy, they'd be like, okay, cool. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Glad you, glad you, glad you made it, brother. I want to hear the ones like, I didn't get into none of that. Praise God. Because you live in the same world, you watch the same television, and you see the draw to do the same things. And I don't know any parent, whether you walking with the Lord or not. How many parents have you, you ever met people who, who don't go to church with their kids too? Why? Because they understand. They understand. Even though the commands of God are a burden for them, they don't want them to be a burden for their children because they understand from an ecclesiastical standpoint, I've lived a long life, and at the end of the day, to glorify God is all that matters. The commands are not burdensome. As a pastor of this church, I'm concerned that there are people, even in this room, where the commands of God are a burden to you. And they're keeping you from being who you are and doing what you want to do. And if that's you, if that's really where you're at, then I think the scripture will say you don't, you haven't obeyed from the heart. I'm afraid that if you stand before the Lord, you know, we live in this culture where we think that God is sort of in the background like, hey, remember me, I'm here. No, it's the opposite. God is in the forefront saying, you better hope I remember you. It's in your best interest that I remember you. Because every, a lot of people know who the Lord is, but does he know you? And if the commands are burdensome, then we're missing the point of this. Jesus, this was the, this was the, 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 the experience of the Jews when Jesus came. Jesus recognized this, so he says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. They were burdened by the weight of the Mosaic law and the way that the, the religious leaders of the day were telling them to apply it. That's why Jesus was so angry at the Pharisees. You're telling them to do all this stuff and putting burdens on these people, and you don't even lift a finger. Are the commands burdensome for you? Is it a hassle to be a Christian? If it is, I don't think you are one. I don't think you are one. I'm not saying it's not challenging. We all have weaknesses. We all at times give in to the habits and patterns that God saved us from. Guilty as charged. But the commands are not burdensome to me. It's not a hassle to obey God. It's a privilege. To obey from the heart means I have a genuine love for Jesus, and that's the opposite of the commands being burdened. Resisting temptation isn't a burden. Being a part of a church isn't a burden. More Christians complain about their churches and stuff they have to do than go to a church where you'll participate. <laughs> Let me just, I'm just, you know I love you, but listen, if this church isn't for you, bye. <laughs> go to a church where you'll participate. That if you can't grow here, don't go here, but don't complain about being here. If you do complain, then help us get better. Or go someplace where God is, you feel like God is there and he's going to meet you because we're doing what we can. 
And I know every, I know many pastors feel this way. If you get offended, talk to me later. But go where you're going to grow. I care more about that. I say that in the new members class. Look, we're not recruiting. If people come to new members and they feel like this isn't for me, I know, my style isn't for everyone. I'm fine with that. I'm grateful that people are here. I'm fine with that. I'm not going to be offended, but I'm not going to change. This is just what God has given me. Go where you can grow, but go someplace where you're going to be a part of the life of the church. When God comes back, there's no Netflix show that we're going to regret, regret not binging. That we're not going to regret missing being a part of the life of the church to do nothing because we were tired or we were cold. People miss church but don't miss going to work, though. We treat coming in, in the presence of God as if that's optional, but we be at church, we be at work on time. Be late for meetings as often as you come to church and you won't have a job. I'm getting too real right now. People ain't coming back next week. If you're a guest here, you don't got to come back next week. I understand. Now we're getting too real. I was sick the other week, and now it's all coming out. I'm sorry. It was the chicken noodle soup. It did something to me. Is Christianity a bunch of stuff that you have to do? Then it makes sense if you don't do it. If it's a burden, it's, I mean, that's a measure stick. Is it a burden for me? If it is, then you're not really a believer. And I love you too much to pretend like you are. So if you want truth, don't ask me. He says that you've been obeyed from the heart, a pattern of teaching that has been handed over. This is a teaching commonly accepted among believers as the new standard for living. It's a way of living counter to the ways that we lived before. This is what we do. This is why we teach every week. This is why we have groups that we have. We're trying to build a community. We're trying to keep ourselves. Listen, why do you think the Bible reminds us consistently of who we are and what not to do? Because no matter what, we're prone to do those things. This is why we preach weekly. This is why we have D groups. This is why we have meetings. This is why we try to do things differently and try new things and honor the Lord because we want to stay in the race. I would like to get a trophy. I'm selfish. I want a trophy. I mean, to live sort of the Christian life, to get all the way to the end and not make it, that's the worst possible scenario I might as well just pursue the world now and have as much fun as I can and pay for I don't know if you like this when I was a kid there was a there was a rule my mom had you be in the house before the street lights come on that was the rule and I was familiar with breaking it but I tried though there were times I would get caught up I'm out playing I'm doing stuff and then I could tell it's starting to get dark I'd either get on my bike, I'd be running. I'm talking about Jesse Owens type. Like, like, like you know what I'm saying? Like, if Guinness was with me, they'd be like, man, you doing all right, breaking some records. I was gone. I'd be flying. I was, I, I was, I was gone. And as soon as them lights came on, it's like, man, all the effort that I had in that moment, there were times I went in the house, like, Mom, I'm sorry, I tried. I was in trouble. I said, before the lights come on. Now I'm an excuse when they do. So there were times I was like, man, shoot, I might as well just stay out then because I'm already in trouble. So <laughs> I'm already going to get beat or whatever the consequences were. So I might as well just not even go. I might as well just hang out another hour or two because I'm in trouble anyway. That was terrible thinking. But, but that was my rationale as a kid. You know, the, the streetlights are on. It's too late. Listen, 
the street lights are coming on and it will be too late. Your effort will be too late. God is not going to be like, well, you did go to church for this period. You did get baptized on this date. You did believe at this point in your life. No. You didn't believe to the end. The street lights came on and there's no excuses. Plenty of parables that Jesus told. The parable of the virgins. Ten virgins. He's saying this in these parables. The street lights are coming on, church. And once they're on, there's no excuses after it. Does this describe us? Since you've been, you've been given this teaching, coupled with a motivation to honor the Lord, that's why, he says in verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Listen, this is really sick. Listen, being set free from sin is not the presence of it and sometimes the failure of it. It's the power of it. When you are a slave, someone has total authority over you. Now, in the context here, he uses slavery different. Their understanding of slavery is a little different than ours. When we think slavery, we think chattel slavery, kidnapping, and these things. They have an indentured servitude where I owe you a debt, I can't pay it, so now I'm going to be your slave until it's paid off. So I'm willingly offering myself to you. American slavery didn't do that. They weren't in Africa like, hey, we work for... No, that was kidnapping. But this slavery is, look, I'm going to offer myself to you to pay off this debt, so I'll do whatever I need to do. Whatever you say I got to do, I'll do it. So this is why he's speaking this way. Whatever you say I got to do, I'll do it. That was the context of slavery that they're talking about. And he's saying, listen, whoever you're a slave to determines your purpose. So if you're a slave, if you owe somebody money, like, look, I need you to go out there and, and clean the pigs and then do this and, and then cut down them trees and then do that, that's what you got to do. I owe this person. I'm their slave. Well, in this passage, it's clear that slavery is not the problem. It's whose slave are you is the issue. In verse 19, he says this. In verse 18, having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Then in verse 19, he says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourself to slavery to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them the slaves to righteousness, which is sanctification. This is what he's saying. I'm using a human analogy because of your weakness. He doesn't mean, I don't think he means moral weakness or intellectual weakness. I think he means human nature. It's within human nature to take what God has said and find some kind of loophole. So let me use this analogy of slavery so that you understand what I'm talking about. You need to be committed to God now the way you were committed to your sin before. With the same fervor and vigor that you pursued your sinfulness, hey, I see you Friday, don't be late, make sure you bring that. That same diligence, be like that towards God. And it will make you like Jesus is what sanctification means. It'll make you like Jesus. So if you, that's what he's saying, go after that. Be diligent to pursue these things like you used to do these things that made you more sinful, and then you'll be more like Jesus. 
Last point I want to say. And this is actually fascinating. And I kind of said this, alluded to this, but I want to say this again. I'm going to read the whole passage again and make one last point. Beginning in verse 15. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Can somebody give me a water, please? Two cold waters. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. This is, an ama- this is a reality right here. Having been set free from sin is not an automatic experience. And it doesn't happen in a moment. Thank you, brother. Having been set free from sin is not an automatic thing. Listen to this. Even after having been set free from sin, as Paul is saying here, he still has to remind us not to offer ourselves as slaves of sinfulness. So you see, we have to finish the game. If having been set free from sin were just this tangible experience that we could just always live in, we wouldn't need to be reminded to not go the other way. It's possible to, as Proverbs says, be a dog returning to its own vomit. And there are people who try the Christian thing. It's a burden. And they go back to the life they used to have. And many become miserable. Become miserable. And I think that's a gift from the Lord. I think it's a gift from the Lord that we get uncomfortable in a degree of misery when we pursue the sinfulness after knowing the Lord. That's his way of saying, hey, come back. Come back. Because if he let you feel comfortable, then you would never come back. And you're going to experience his wrath. Those of us who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ have been set free from the power of sin and can now live a life that glorifies him. But we must go after, if it's a burden, I'm not talk, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, it doesn't say if it's a burden your first five years, it's a, if it's a burden, we must go after that. Confess that to the Lord. Ask someone that you know that will help you for help because the alternative is none. There's no real alternative that I think in the end you'd be satisfied with. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity, now offer them as slaves of righteousness, which results and being like Jesus. This is our responsibility as genuine believers of Jesus Christ. If this doesn't describe you, let's talk. Let's talk. 
God says in Isaiah, let's reason together. I already know what you've done. Let's talk. No judgments here. You're in good company. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, even though it takes faith for us, because we don't always understand the distinction between the power of sin and the presence, because sometimes we give in to the presence of sin, and we feel like it has power over us. You said in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter rather, chapter 1, that whoever does not grow in, in biblical qualities is so nearsighted, he has forgotten that he has been cleansed of his former sins. In other words, we have forgotten that we have been forgiven for our sins and that we are no longer under the power of that sin. Yes, we may give into habits and patterns and it may feel like it has power over us again, but because your spirit resides in us, that we can fight the good fight of faith. But we can't do it alone, Lord. I pray for anyone here who is more fearful of what people would think or given to shame so much so that they would rather just stay where they are and not receive the word that's given, not receive the opportunity. I pray for people who it is a burden to follow you. Maybe it's a burden because there are things that they want to do that they don't get to do. There are desires that they have and things they prayed for that they haven't received. And, and so now following you feels more like a burden. I pray that you would comfort those people, that you would tell them as you told the, the crowd that was listening to John's disciples question who you were, that they would not be a blessed of those who were not offended because of me is what you said. If there's anyone here that's offended because things have not worked or gone in their life the way they thought they would after believing in you, I pray that you would remind them that it's okay, that you understand. Just like you weren't mad at John the Baptist for doubting if you were who you said you were, you're not mad at them, but you ask them to come home Let's reason together. You already know what we've done. I pray that you would help each of us really, really assess. For we may not be pursuing the world, but we do make decisions sometimes that affect our participation in, in spiritual things. We don't share the gospel with people at our work. Some people don't even know we're Christians. We pick and choose what meetings we come to. We pick and choose what we do of our time. When it talks about being with you, we pick and choose how long we're going to read. We, we do all these things that don't help us stay focused. You tell us in your word to keep yourselves in the love of God, as you said in the book of Jude. Father, please help us to do that. Help us as we get in our D groups in April and we get back to the basics of reading, praying, meditating, fasting, just good old regular fellowship. Help us. There's no technique, no speaker, no leader, no pastor 
They can do anything. If you, if you don't change the hearts and, and re reignite our hearts to do so. Starting with myself. Ignite my heart, Lord. May I live what I preach. And may those who hear what I preach live what they hear for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.